welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. So welcome everybody. My name is Micah, if we have not met, and I'm the pastor here at Awaken. Glad you are here. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Um, we're going to be there today. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're in a series called Lost in Translation. So we've, we've, we've chosen a, a few passages in Scripture that are either difficult to interpret or difficult to hear, or both, and we're kind of walking through those and trying to make sense of them. Last week, uh, I want to just reiterate one thing that I said because I think it's really important that we don't miss this piece. Uh, we talked about Deuteronomy 21, which is a passage that talks about the spoils of war and what Israel was to do when they conquered a neighboring nation. And I mentioned this idea that Scripture is uh, this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a snapshot along the continuum of human progression. And so we shouldn't be surprised when it comes out of a context and culture in which the spoils of war and conquering neighboring nations is totally normal, that God would have something to say to Israel about that. But I also said, and I think this is the part that I don't want us to miss, that while the scriptures are a a, a snapshot along a continuum, they are no less divine, no less inspired, no less the word of God. Which means that we as the church and people who follow Jesus and want to understand it should work harder even to ask questions about what does this mean and to interpret the scriptures and discern what exactly, when we read something in scripture, what is being said about God. At face value, it might seem alarming to us or different or at least out of context to us, but I would submit to you that if the scriptures are the scriptures, if they are God's word and they are revealing God, then it should tell us something about the heart of God that we see revealed in Jesus. Amen? No more important than today in Romans chapter 9. So, if you have your Bibles, I will ask you to stand if you can, and we will read starting in verse 19. Paul says this, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is being formed say the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes, some for common use? Some of your translations may say some for honorable, some for dishonorable use. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known and the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us who he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Pray with me if you would. God, as we uh, look at your scriptures, as we dive into this passage this morning, it's my prayer as always that you would speak, that um, you might say the things that uh, each of us need to hear in the way that only you can. I pray that you would meet us where we are, God. And I pray that uh, the things that I've prepared and the thoughts that I have would be... um, Pleasing to you, the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips would, would honor you, God. Um, so it's in, this, uh, in your name that I pray and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so Romans chapter 9 is a part of a larger discourse, uh, and I want to unpack this a little bit this morning. Uh, this passage in particular, Romans 9, in this part, this section, is one of the most important passages that's used to build and defend a theological system called Calvinism. Many of you may have heard this before. Uh, It's made famous by a guy named John Calvin, who was a contemporary of Martin Luther, 
uh, around the 1500s, also a part of the Protestant Reformation, which is why this idea or this ideology of Calvinism is often also referred to as Reformed theology. So Calvin um, lived around this time, but he actually gets his inspiration from a 4th century church father for 100 church history points. Who are we talking about? Anyone? Augustine, yes, well done. Well, you guys, that was great. I thought, I, you know, every now and again, I'm, I'm a little nervous, like I'm just going to hear crickets, but you're just piping right in. Augustine, that's right. So he actually gets his inspiration from Augustine, who, was, who lived in like the fourth century. Augustine was uh, in conversation with a few different people in his time frame. One of them, a guy named Pelagius, he, he argued that there was no original sin and that salvation could essentially be earned. And Augustine sort of, in, in arguing with Pelagius, really sharpens his view on what many call predestination. He argues that God chooses to extend grace to some, which, is, which is, uh, Augustine would call the elect, and not to all, right? So bypassing some that he called the reprobates. So you have the elect and the reprobates. Someone needed a marketing campaign, a PR person. Um, so God predestines some to eternal life via irresistible but not coercive grace, And others are left in sin to be justly condemned through their own choices and deeds, right? So Augustine argues that while God's election may not be equitable, it's not for all, it's certainly not unfair, he would say. We all as sinners have no claim to the grace of God, but God in his mercy extends grace to some to display his sovereignty and his power and his grace. Calvin goes on record and says this, God preordained for his own glory and the display of his attributes of mercy and justice a part of the human race without any merit of their own to eternal salvation and another part in just punishment of their sin to eternal damnation. John Calvin. So as you read Romans 9 and Romans 8 and part of Ephesians 1, you put all these together And if you read it in this fashion, the way Calvin did, the way Augustine did, I'm going to call it a deterministic way, right, where where what's being talked about is sort of what's destined. If you do this and you read it in this way, a couple of things uh, are are implied, or there are a couple of implications. One, that all is determined. Essentially, uh, some argue that this is called like a blueprint theory. Like, uh, God is sovereign over every molecule, every minute detail, every act of love and beauty, every act of evil and despair. God is sovereign and in control of it all, right? Now, not everybody would say they believe that, but sometimes I think people believe that without actually knowing they believe it, and they show up at a funeral and they say, oh, I'm so sorry about your loss. God's in control, right? Which means that God determined this, that this is all a part of God's will. Even if it was the most horrible, tragic death, Every minute detail is under God's sovereign control. That's one implication. Another implication is that our eternal destiny is also predetermined. Not only is the world and our lives predetermined, and we become, it's essentially a script that's already been written that we are actors in, but also then, take it another step further, every person that's ever lived, every person that ever will live, has been already predestined before the foundations of the earth to either eternal bliss or eternal torment. I'm not so sure that I like that. Um, I, think that um, I think that there might be a better way to read Romans 9. Um, 
But let's, let's hold off on that just for a second. If you read this passage, verses 19 to 23, the ones that we read, and you unpack it a little bit, this is essentially what one could argue. Just before, just before verse 19, in verse 18, uh, we didn't read, Paul says, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden. Okay, this is a reference to the Exodus story, to Pharaoh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And then Paul sort of anticipates, he sort of asks a rhetorical question, he anticipates what some might object and say in verse 19. One of you will say to me, why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will? Or you could say differently, why are we being blamed for being created or for being what God created us to be, hard-hearted? And how can we resist God's will and intention? And then Paul says, who are you to talk back to God? Can one who's being formed say to the one who's forming, why have you made me this way? Does not the potter have the right to make whatever, God, whatever the potter wants to make, is essentially what he's saying. What if God wants to make his power and wrath known through these objects of wrath and his mercy known through these objects of mercy? Is that not God's prerogative? Can he not do that? Now, if I'm being honest, if I just read this section as it is, I get it. I get how people could come to this conclusion and read it in this way. It would appear that God can do what God wants to do. If God wants, has, has a desire to fashion some for wrath and some for mercy, then God also has the unilateral control and the power to make that decision. God is God. Who are we to question God's decision? So if I get it how Calvin and Augustine and others might interpret the passage this way. But if you know me well enough and you've been around awaken long enough, you might know that I'm going to argue the exact opposite is true in this passage. I hope to convince you of it. Um, a couple weeks ago, Jenna talked about the women in ministry passage, and, and uh, uh, at one point I think she said, I'm not trying to uh, you know, persuade you to believe this. I'm going to try to persuade you to believe this. <laughs> because I think that anything less than what I'm going to argue has massive implications about our picture of God that I don't think are even close to the heart of God. So I'm going to try to persuade you. You may leave today and you may say, you know what? I don't think you're right. I'm sticking with Calvin and the Reformed tradition on this one. Totally cool. One of my best friends from seminary. I still, I'm like, Tim, you're like the smartest guy I know. I can't believe you don't see it on this one. But he's totally Reformed. He's like going to the bank on this one. So we've had lots of great conversations. My point here is, you don't have to agree with me on this, but I'm going to try to persuade you of another way of reading this passage. If, in fact, you've read it and thought, what is going on here? And how on earth does that reflect God? So, are you ready? Here we go. Okay. I want to argue that this passage does not highlight an inflexible and omnipotent God who unilaterally executes his will and power over everything, and everything's predestined and determined. Rather, I'm actually going to argue that this is about the flexible and gracious heart of God who desires that none should perish. That this is about our hearts, which by decisions we make on our own volition and will, point us in a particular direction, which God then warns us about, but then honors and fashions us to that degree. So, why can this passage not appear or not mean what it appears on the surface? Why can we not say that the determinative or predestinary way of interpreting is the best one? I have two thoughts. Number one, it doesn't look like Jesus. I don't think that's, I know that's not rocket science, 
But it doesn't look like Jesus. When we interpret the Bible, when we come to the text, he's calling. (laughs) He's going to say, listen up, Micah's on to something here. (laughs) When we interpret the Bible, this is a great opportunity for all of you to see. Mine wasn't even on vibrate. There we go. When we interpret the scriptures, we come to a passage like this. We begin and we end with Christ and Christ crucified. If we take this passage at face value, or, and we agree with Calvin and Augustine and others, here's the million-dollar question. What kind of God does this belief or interpretation presuppose? Meaning, if I hold this belief or this way of looking at this text, what kind of picture do I have to have of God in order to hold that view? I would submit to you that this interpretation presupposes a God that looks nothing like Jesus, who says on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, who Peter says desires none should perish, none, niet, nada, nunca, nine, like it's, you could say it in a million different languages, it means the same thing, none, all would be saved. That Torah says that God calls all of creation good. And if you're a Trinitarian, you would agree that Jesus was a part of that process. Rather, this supposes, if you believe it, if you interpret it that way, it supposes a capricious and arbitrary and random God who's willing to create things and not call them good, but rather dispose of them to show his wrath and justice, grace and mercy. I don't think this shows a God who is strong, I think, actually, on the contrary, it shows a God who's weak and uses defenseless creations to prop God's self up. It's not a God who engenders worship and love by choice and relationship, but rather out of manipulation and coercion. See, if you you read this passage, God is essentially, I wish I, I had thought about this, to bring a potter up here, to make me two vessels, you know? It's as if God is saying, like, I make these two vessels, and this one's made for grace and mercy, and this one's made for wrath, and smashes this one, and then says to the ones made for mercy, see, aren't you glad that I didn't do that to you? Now worship me for my grace and my mercy. If my kids were on the playground and they played like this, I would send them to a counselor. (laughs) Like, really fast! I don't think that this... If you, if you hold this interpretation and, you, and then you ask, what kind of God does this presuppose? It is scary. And I don't think it looks like Jesus at all. So, the cross and Jesus crucified for his enemies demonstrating sacrificial love and power. See, the power that we see in the world is coercive, top-down, manipulative power. And we think that's, how, that's what power always looks like. But the cross shows us something very different than that. And the cross shows us who Jesus is, and therefore, who God is. So the power of God looks very different than the power of the world. I cannot, every interpretation and belief about God, I suggest you submit it to what you know and what is revealed to us about God in Jesus on the cross. It has to be congruent with what we know about God and Jesus. Because the scriptures themselves say, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, we want to see the Father. And what does Jesus say? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The book of Hebrews, which we just studied, chapter 1 opens and it says, Jesus is the exact representation of God. The the manifestation, the icon of who God is. So any belief that you have about God has to be congruent with Jesus. 
If it goes against who Jesus is and was and demonstrated, then I would suggest that you go back to the drawing board. So that's the first thing I want to say. Why can you not read Romans 9 in this way? Because it looks nothing like Jesus. (sighs) Just getting warmed up. Come on now. So, number two. Why can this not be the right interpretation? The context of Romans 9 doesn't lead to this interpretation. Are there, is there any realtors in the room? Any realtors or mortgage people in the room? Corky, raise your hand. I know you are. You can't just sit back there and not... You sold me my house, Corky! <laughs> we have at least one more, uh, realtor in the room. Realtors always say, location, 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 right? You've heard this before? That's good advice. It's great advice. Biblical interpreters should be saying context, context, context. I think that almost every interpretation that I have found that is lacking or just totally incorrect is a direct reflection of an inability to determine context. If you read Romans 9 in context, it cannot mean that God predetermines everything that all is uh, uh, already determined and that God is sort of unilaterally executing God's will. It cannot mean that because of the context. It can't be a testimony to God's control and omnipotent power. It cannot mean that all is predetermined, like this blueprint idea. It cannot mean that our eternal destination is a foregone conclusion. How do I know this? Number one, Paul, in Romans 9, is addressing a particular question. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 6 of Romans 9. This is the key, I would submit, to interpreting Romans, which is a difficult text to interpret. This is the key to Romans 9 to 11, which is one unit. Paul says in verse 6, It is not as though God's word has failed. The question that Paul is addressing is, Has God been faithful to God's covenant promise to Israel to create a group of people in the world through whom he would redeem the world. Those around Paul, in Paul's context, many were asking, has God not been faithful to his promise? And Paul is addressing this question of, has God been faithful to the promise he made? You cannot interpret Romans 9 to 11 without this question in mind. In fact, if you're ever unsure when you're reading this section, I would submit this is an anchor You come back to it and say, how is it answering this question of has God been faithful to God's promise? What was the promise? Genesis chapter 12, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons, and I am one of them, right? This is the promise that God made in the beginning to Abram that his seed from him would be this family, this group of people in the world through whom God would redeem and restore all that God made and called good. That's the promise, right? And some are saying, This is not happening. But look what Paul says in verse 6. He says, For not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Paul is essentially saying, some in in Israel are saying that God has not made good on his promise because they find themselves outside of fellowship with Yahweh. And Paul is arguing, God has been faithful. He has been faithful. Not all of you are, not all that are descended from Israel are Israel. Now here's the key. Just like we've talked about in the Exodus stuff, Egypt is a location, it's a physical geographic location, and in scripture, it is a spiritual state of being. So too it is with Israel. Israel is a nation state, it's a group of people, and 
it's a spiritual state, which is why Paul can say, some of you come from Israel, but you're not Israel. You remember White Men Can't Jump? Do you remember that movie? Yeah, he says, like, you can listen to Jimi Hendrix, but you can't hear Jimi Hendrix, right? Some of you are from Israel, but you're not Israel, Paul says. So he's saying, it's, it's not that God hasn't been faithful. It's, in fact, that God has been faithful through Abraham, those who had the faith of Abraham and Yahweh, and now in Christ are God's covenant people. God is offering this covenant group, this covenant relationship in and through or by faith. He says, God has been totally faithful on his promise. Israel, some of you, were and are falling away. And that's why the prophets come in the Old Testament. God warned them time and time again, repent, return, come back. Stop hardening your hearts and return to him, he says. Return to me. So this passage is not about God's unilateral will and control or anyone's predetermined destination, but it's a conversation about has God been faithful to Israel? in his covenant promise to redeem and restore the world through this group of people. If you have Paul's original question in mind from verse 6, then reading Romans 9, 19 through 23 and others, you can't come to that conclusion because he's not answering that question. He's not addressing it. Secondly, if he's not answering that question, This is confirmed only by his summation of his whole argument in chapter 9. Paul sums up his argument at the end of chapter 9, and you would think that if he's arguing for, or if he's offering a deterministic way of reading this text, and that God predetermines everything, that's essentially how he would sum up his argument, right? He says, should not the potter do what the potter wants to do? Some for mercy, some for wrath. In his sum, you would think he would sum that right up, and it would be consistent with that interpretation. But it's not. It's completely different. Look at what he says in verse uh, 30. He says, what shall we say then? Right? I'm going to sum this up. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But you, the people of Israel, who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, have not attained it. You've missed it. He sums up his argument. He essentially says, it's not that God has been unfaithful here. It's that you've been going about it in all the wrong ways. Your scorecard is measuring the wrong things. Your hearts have been heading in a different direction, and now you're getting exactly what you wanted. God is continuing to fashion you, or he's, he's bringing judgment on you because you're headed in this direction. Without heed to warning, you keep going in this direction. So it cannot mean what many believe it to mean. Because one, Paul's not asking this question. Two, his sum of his argument doesn't even lend to that interpretation. And finally, my friends, which I think is the strongest point of this argument this morning, what does the potter's house mean? He uses an an illustration, an analogy, from the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. If Paul uses an analogy in the New Testament, then he presupposes the meaning of the Old Testament meaning. So what does the potter's house mean? If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. And this is where we begin to get to the heart of God. And what I want to argue, we see in this passage, is not a determinative, predestined, sort of unilateral control, but rather the flexible heart of God who responds to us when we respond to him. Here's what verse chapter 18 says. This is Jeremiah. He's a prophet. He gets this word from the Lord to give to Israel. And here's what he says. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house. There I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping, 
from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does? Like the clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in the hand of his, so you are in my hand, Israel. Now listen, key in here. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, I will relent and not inflict the disaster I had planned. If at any other time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up or planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey, then I will reconsider the good I have planned and intended for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Israel, this is what the Lord says, look, I am preparing disaster for you and devising a plan against you. Not because this is what I've predetermined, but because this is where you're headed. This is a warning. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, and they sort of go all fatalistic. It's no use. We will continue our own plans. We'll follow our stubbornness with our evil hearts. Israel. Here's the context of the potter's wheel, and I will try to wrap this up. Israel was wandering from Yahweh. They were making choices that were hardening their hearts to the things of God. And Jeremiah gets this word to warn them. It's about warning. And he says, if they continue going in this direction, God will have no choice but to bring about them the destruction which they're planning for themselves. Now, if you go back to Romans, there's that little verse in there that says the the, the destruction prepared for you in Romans 9. This is really, really nerdy technical Greek, but there's actually a really good case that you should translate that, that you have prepared for yourselves. Not that somebody else has prepared for you, which is totally in line with the the potter's house analogy. So he says, you're going in this direction, and I will have no choice but to continue fashioning you in that direction. Jeremiah 18 isn't about a deterministic God who unilaterally imposes his will, on his subjects. It's not about the power of the potter to do whatever he wants. It's not about the power of the potter to do, to determine what the clay becomes. In fact, if you read the passage, it says that the, the, the clay becomes marred in the hands of the potter. Not because the potter wants it to be marred, or not because the potter does something to it, but if you talk to potters, they will tell you that clay has a mind of its own. There's like a molecular, I've talked to Mike and some of the other potters, there's a molecular structure to clay, and when you start working with it, you might be fashioning it in a certain direction only to find out that the clay is just not going that way. So you have to either destroy it, or as the wise potter, you work with the clay, you respond to the clay, and you fashion it into something else that, it, that it's headed towards or that it's moving towards. Jeremiah 18 isn't about God's predeterminative, all-unilateral power. It's actually about the flexibility of God and the response of God when we respond to him. So God says through Jeremiah, it's a warning. If I declare to this nation or this king that, that destruction is coming and they repent, I will relent. Have you ever said to your, if you have children, this is great. Uh, uh, like, if you do not stop looking at that iPad, I will throw it in the river Something to that effect. The point is not, now I'm bound by what I've said because I've said it because I'm the father and I have to throw it in the river. No, if they stop looking at their iPad, guess what I'm going to do? I'm not going to throw it in the river. I say something to intend change. It's called speech act theory. 
we often say something to actually intend or affect change in someone, right? We go here so that they'll move. And if they don't, well, then Scripture's no different. And God is no different in Scripture. He says, destruction is coming and I will destroy you. Which either binds God to that, deter- that, that, that phrase, what God has said, or God is saying that to intend change on the people he's saying it to. That's the point of the potter's house in Jeremiah 18. So it is for you, Israel. Your hard-heartedness has led me to no other option but to continue to fashion you in this direction. But if you repent and turn towards me, I will fashion you in a different direction. The whole point of the potter's house is to highlight the flexible and gracious heart of God, not the unilateral control of the potter to do whatever he wants with the pot. That's not the point. No, the potter's wheel, the potter's house, I would argue, the, the, po- the point of Romans 9, because Paul uses the analogy, is that God responds when we move towards God. Turn to me and I will turn to you. Come to me and I will come to you. Respond to me and I will respond to you. But if you don't, if you continue to choose to live in this direction and point your life in that direction, then I will have no other choice but to honor your request and your movement and fashion you in that direction. God does not unilaterally execute his will and desire. It is a relationship It is an invitation. Respond to me. Come to me. Repent. And I will move towards you. The point of Romans 9, the point of the potter's house in Jeremiah, is not that God has predestined everything to be, that every detail of every moment of every single person's life in this room has already been predetermined, and essentially you're an actor in somebody else's script. That is not the point. I submit to you that God freely gives God's self in an offering of relationship to you and I. Freely hangs on a cross, dies for your sin and my sin, and says, will you come to me? This way of living that you're on does not lead to life. In fact, it leads to death. Will you repent, which means turn around in Hebrew, and come to me? And when we do, God honors our choice. In fact, I would say we find that God has already moved towards you. God has already made the first move. So you read Romans 9. It's not doom and gloom. It's actually, I would say, a testimony to the bright light of the gospel, which says that God is for you, has done everything. If you move the screen, Jesus is back there. He's done everything that he's done for you and for me. And it's an invitation to follow, to come back, to repent, to turn around. So, what if I'm right? <laughs> what if I'm right on this one? What if this way to interpret Romans 9 is actually what Paul intended? I always hold the possibility that it's not, that I'm wrong. I could be wrong. But man, I have read so much on this. I have listened and studied. And, and if, if I'm anything like you... I have come to this passage many times and just thought, it cannot be that way. That cannot reflect God's heart. There's got to be a better way to read it. And I think this is it. As I close, if I'm right, if this is a better way to read Romans 9, and it actually highlights the gracious, loving, responsive heart of God, not the unilateral, domineering, uh, uh, sort of predestinary 
version, two implications. One, it means that God gives us warnings when we're headed down a path of destruction and we should probably listen to them because God honors our choices. And if we're headed to a path that leads to death, God will honor that unless we turn around. This is not do whatever you want, everything's going to be fine. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that God warns us sometimes and gives us moments where we see where we're headed and opportunities to respond all the way to the end. God gives that invitation. And so I would say to you this morning, maybe that's a warning. Maybe today is a, is a, is a turn on the lights moment to say, if you keep choosing those choices and they're leading to death, God honors that because it's got to be relational. It's not unilateral. And secondly, I would say, it means that God has already moved towards me. It means that God has already moved towards you. If you want to know what God looks like, look no further than Jesus sacrificing himself for you, for me, on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them for they, they don't know what they're doing. If you want to know what God looks like, that's it. So, friends, that's a lot. I recognize it may be new. Maybe it's, uh, maybe you disagree. Either way, I want to give us uh, an opportunity for some silence to just reflect, to think about um, exactly who God is and what God is like. So I'll invite the band to come up. I'm going to offer a word of prayer. Uh, We do this weekly uh, with a conviction that often whoever is teaching may not be what you need to hear and that God uh, speaks in silence too. So let me offer a word of prayer, leave you to a moment of silence, and then uh, we'll close in song. God, as we consider just exactly who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be in Jesus and what the scriptures say about you, I pray that maybe even in these next moments that you would crystallize for us, that you might uh, turn on the lights or wipe away any images of you that are not true, that are inaccurate, that are less than what we see in Jesus. I pray that what we know of you, what we believe to be true about you, what informs our life of you, would be that which we know about Jesus, that it would be congruent And God, I pray that by your spirit, you might just illuminate uh, what we need to see and hear this morning. So speak, Holy Spirit, I pray. May you come to see that God is waiting for you to turn around, to come home and to stop going in that direction. And as you do, may you come to know the heart of God as one who has already turned towards you and is moving towards you. Grace and peace. Love you guys. See ya. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.